0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Matters podcast, a series of interviews with key leaders throughout the industry, all brought to you by the cybersecurity team at NUCO, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. Your host today are me, Jake Sparks, heading up the cyber division here at NUCO, and the newest member of our growing team, already making a name for herself, Alexandra O'Shaughnessy Treadwell. And we're delighted to be joined today by Caleb Barlow. Well, thanks for having me. Great pleasure, great pleasure. Good to be speaking with you. An entrepreneur with a technical background and a fantastic communicator. He's as equally comfortable presenting at TED Talks or primetime news, as he is consulting the board of a major healthcare provider. As VP of threat intelligence at IBM, he built one of the largest instant response platforms, including the world's first immersive cyber range, uh, he went on to be President and CEO of supply chain security business Redspin, helping them become the DoD's first approved third-party assessor at the same time as taking the helm at parent company Synergist Tech, a cyber services firm with an emphasis on healthcare. Uh, currently heading up his own business, Sileet, he advises private equity firms on the right cyber businesses to target. So once again, welcome to the show, Caleb. Well, thank you, Jake. It's great to, great to be here. Fantastic, thank you, thank you. Um, to get us started, we always love to ask people the same thing, which is how did you first get into cybersecurity?
1: Well, this is actually an interesting story. You know, IBM was under pressure from its board of directors to say, hey, look, you've got to go solve this cybersecurity problem. And this is 10, 11 years ago. Hmm. And um, you know, IBM decided it was going to go buy Q1 Labs and do something very unique, which is to put the Q1 Labs team in charge. And they seeded that team with about a half a dozen seasoned kind of maverick executives from IBM that knew how to get things done. And I was one of those people. So, great. you know, that was the start at the ground floor of the IBM security business. And, you know, eight years, $3 billion in revenue a year, and about 22 acquisitions later, uh, that's where we ended up.
0: Wow. Fascinating. They've got such a great pedigree in, in security, IBM, right? Uh, yeah, they certainly do. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, and and what or who has been the biggest influence on your career?
1: Well, it's really not a, a who, it's a what. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's this concept in incident response and, you know, crisis response, a concept called an OODA loop, which stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. It, it was developed, actually, by an American fighter pilot trying to describe how they make decisions in a crisis. And... You know, I actually started my career in emergency medicine and firefighting early, wow. early on, back when I was, was, how I put myself through college. Mm-hmm. And um, you learn a different management model, right? You learn to quickly observe, assess, orient to what's going on, make a decision, and you're very comfortable making decisions and going back on those decisions with new evidence. Now, mm-hmm. that's a very, very different management methodology than what you'd see in a boardroom or what's taught in an MBA class. And, I've been using OODA loops for years, had no idea that's what they were even called until uh, Bruce Schneier, who's well known in the security community, his office was right outside of mine at IBM. And he's like, You're talking about an OODA loop. And, and then he explained it to me, and that was kind of it.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. I've, n- I've not heard that uh, that phrase before. Is it, is it entering kind of business parlance uh, more and more now?
1: Well, you know, I think what people are finding is that you know, at the end of the day, crisis decision-making is very different than executive decision-making. You know, if we Mm. think of a typical boardroom discussion, uh, you know, you have a lot of uh, kind of cultural norms. I mean, certainly uh, a high-power executive will never go back on a decision, even Mm. in the light of overwhelming evidence that maybe it was a bad one, right? They, Mm. you know, we, we champion people that state a direction and hold to it. And, you know, we also, you know, really are very uncomfortable in business making decisions with limited data. I mean, if you've got a tough yeah. decision to make in a boardroom, you go out and hire a bunch of consultants. You slow down. You, mm. you know, how many times have you heard in your career, "What does the data tell you?" Well, yeah, that's fine. not going to work when you're up against a human adversary that can pivot mm. and jog. And I think people often forget that a cybersecurity incident—it's a person on the other end of yeah. this. It's not formulaic, and. You've got to understand that person and get inside their decision making if you're going to win that battle.
0: Mm, Interesting. And and to use the phrase battle, I guess it's a form of warfare, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Mm. I mean, you know, the um, so the United States Military Academy and, you know, I don't know, there's probably an equivalent to this in Europe, right? Um, There's a one required class that all new cadets have to take. And it's not what you'd think. You know, it's not calculus or literature, it's boxing. So, Jake, why why do you think boxing is a required class, and it's a bit controversial, right, of all new cadets at the US Military Academy at West Point?
0: It's a, I mean, I guess it's teaching you one about aggression and and about defense.
1: So you know what it feels like to get punched in the face, Jake. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, Exactly, right? Yeah. Because here's the thing, if you're getting punched in the face, until you learn to put your fists up and start punching back, you're going to keep getting punched in the face and mm. it's going to hurt. Yeah, and that's yeah. such a different lesson. And, it, and I think it also underscores something really important, like take any kind of experiential learning, like learning to swim, right? Mm. You could go read all the books you want on learning to swim. If somebody yeah. throws you in the ocean and you've never practiced it, you're probably going to drown You know, Mm. learning to swim, you got to get out of the book. You got to get in a pool. You got to practice and rehearse. And the same is true with cybersecurity. You can read all the books you want. You can have, you know, all the methodologies and documentation you want. But if you don't practice it as a team, it's not going to end well.
0: Interesting. And I guess that's probably why all the full contact martial arts tend to dominate stuff like, I mean, not my area, but things like MMA and things like that. Interesting.
1: Well, it, you know, it's a different type of thought process and decision-making. Mm. Again, you are up against a human adversary, and that is not something we're really ever encounter in business in any other context. Right. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you've made
0: high-profile media appearances over the years and also specialized in consulting the C-suite on information security. Is there a major or unifying message that you strive to get across?
1: Well, I, I think it's really all about uh, having a capability model versus, you know, just kind of having procedures and documentation. And there's really capability that you need to build in four key areas. You know, obviously, you know, kind of cybersecurity skills and instant response. That's one. Mm. Number two, and this, this is surprising to most people, is communication skills. You know, if you don't know how to communicate internally, externally, with your partners, with your customers. Again, things aren't gonna end well during a crisis if you can't communicate on what to do because people are gonna fill that void with their own speculation. And I can't tell you how many times, in fact, this isn't a a research statistic, but I would argue that the vast majority of high profile breaches we've seen over the last 10 years, the lackluster communications and decision-making causes more damage than the threat actor in most companies, you know, because people either don't communicate, which is a decision in of itself Mm -hmm. and usually a Mm -hmm. bad decision, or they communicate bad data, not knowing what to say and how to say it, or they go Mm -hmm. sideways with regulators. Um, The third piece is obviously legal and the fourth capability you really need. And this is the tough one is you need business resiliency skills. You know, on any cybersecurity response team, it is critical to have business skills that can understand what can the business handle? What alternatives might we have? How mm. could we stand up the business in another way? This isn't any different than a fire or a flood or a natural disaster. You have to think about resiliency if you can't get access to your IT systems.
0: Interesting, interesting, fantastic. So so um, incident response, communication, well, sorry, what, what resiliency, what was the, legal and legal thank you thank you great
1: and and specifically on legal it's not you know it's not your in-house counsel that reviews contracts right Mm. you need a specialist this isn't i mean this isn't any different than a loved one has a cardiac incident you don't go to your local general practitioner you go to cardiac surgeon right Mm. it's the same thing when your business sees surgery you call in a specialist that really understands what they're doing in this space Mm.
0: Interesting, interesting. Thank you, thank you. Um, and, and on the healthcare front, you have a particular focus on the healthcare sector. What can you tell us about the rise in targeted attacks on U.S. hospitals during the pandemic?
1: Well, you know, this was a really interesting kind of uh, series of episodes that unfolded as threat actors tried to decide whether they were going to attack healthcare, which can have a kinetic impact on people, at a time when Healthcare was crippled. I remember at the start of the pandemic, certainly in the UK, certainly here in Europe, like hospitals were overwhelmed. ICUs were overwhelmed. You know, you saw people setting up field hospitals and parking lots. And I think it's interesting. Bleeping Computer reached out to a series of ransomware gangs and asked them if they would attack hospitals during the pandemic. And of course, you know, they all came back with various responses in broken English that, no, of course not. You know, we're not going to hurt people Mm. and, you know, Maybe somebody took them at their word, but that's exactly the opposite of what happened. And, you know, the way this unfolded was really interesting. You know, historically, pre-pandemic, you might see a hospital get locked up with ransomware, maybe a department. um, It would be a small incident. People would often pay the ransom. They'd get Mm. the data back and they would move on. And, you know, maybe the worst thing that happened is, you know, patient care might have been disrupted for a few hours at one particular location. Well, then at the very start of this, we saw the impact at universal health systems where, you know, this was very different. And remember, when these bad guys are targeting, they understand who they're targeting. They, they know what they're after. When UHS was taken down, it impacted 250 of their 400 facilities in the middle wow. of a pandemic, taking out their entire IT system, including the phones. That's a different kind of attack. Like that mm. is attack an attack knowing full well that you are going to cause impact to people. You are yeah. going to cause an impact to patient care. Now, luckily in this case, they didn't get into the electronic medical record system. That was, mm. you know, looks like that was held with a cloud provider. Uh, and they got things back up and running quickly, but it still had a really big impact. And, and this was kind of the crossing of the Rubicon, if you will. Um, where things went after that, you know, we saw... A Düsseldorf University clinic in Germany, you know, a patient allegedly died uh, due to a delay in getting the emergency room that you know whether the death was directly caused by that or not is a little bit being argued but either way it had an impact, but then mm. the really big scenario occurred. You know, at the University of Vermont health network and a few weeks before the US presidential election so you know right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an attempted takedown of the trick bot botnet driven by several. Uh, commercial cybersecurity companies, uh, rumored also to have participation from U.S. Cyber Command. And the problem in this case is the takedown failed. Um, Mm. But, you know, and and this is kind of the unfortunate thing, the PR machine at a couple of these cybersecurity companies, you know, went out pounding their chest that they had taken down TrickBot. Mm. And, you know, executive motivations sometimes drive people to do things they probably shouldn't. Uh, but kind of one of the unwritten rules of cybersecurity PR is you don't talk about takeouts ever. Right. You know, for a whole lot of obvious reasons. You don't want to give away your sources and methods. You want to be able to repeat these things in the future. And yeah. it's generally not a good idea to brag to bad guys that, yeah. you know, you cause them disruption. Well, you know, needless to say, and it's, it's not known if this was retaliatory, but the timing certainly looks like it was. So on October 29th, CISA, FBI, D, uh, Department of Health and Human Services started warning about a significant attack on more than 400 healthcare institutions in the crosshairs. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time this was done, you know they took down a half dozen or more hospitals. The biggest impact was the University of Mont Health System, $64 million in impact, furloughed or reassigned 300 employees, 5,000 computers, 1,300 servers they had to call in the U.S. National Guard, which is kind of the equivalent of the U.S. civilian army to help them, well, literally it's the U.S. civilian army, to help them um, respond to this attack, right? So, you know, I think what happened here in the middle of the pandemic was we went from, you know, maybe having a little empathy for hospitals to realizing that they were a juicy target. They were really one of the only things open in the early days mm. of the pandemic, it would get news, and it was retaliatory. Yeah. Um, you know, so unfortunately, what this meant for most healthcare institutions is, you know, healthcare really hadn't invested heavily in cybersecurity readiness. Mm. And unfortunately, what we came out of the pandemic with was, if you want to stay open and you want to be able to treat patients uninterrupted, you need to up your security game. Yeah. And that's what you know, and then we start, saw people start to invest. Unfortunately, we had to go through a little pain to get there.
0: Mm, that's some stark and some sobering stats. Thank you. very interesting. Uh, obviously very concerning. And, uh, but so following on from from healthcare, how' into other areas, how has the term critical infrastructure broadened in in, in recent years?
1: Well, I, I think we I don't know if it has, but I think we need to redefine it, right? I mean, when most people talk about critical infrastructure, they refer to, you know, and I, I don't mean to make this all United States centric, but you know, that's that's where kind of these terms come from, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, there are 16 US critical infrastructure sectors. And they're the things you'd think of, right? Healthcare, energy, finance, you know, frankly, a very World War II mentality in terms of what is critical infrastructure. So let me ask you this: you know, at the start of the pandemic what did you really need? I don't know about your yeah. household, but what was critical infrastructure in my household was getting access to goods and materials during a supply chain crisis. Yeah, quite Being able to communicate with friends and colleagues and being able to send my kids mm-hmm. to school, right? So I think one of the things we have to do is we have to realize that the pandemic brought us a whole new way to work, a whole new way to educate. Our critical infrastructure has to change, Like. We've got to look at cloud providers, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Oracle. That's critical infrastructure now. Yeah. We've got to look at things like Zoom, which we're talking about on now. I mean, I don't know about you, but this is how my kids went to school and how I went to work. It yeah, is absolutely quite. critical infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. I could care less about my phone system, you know, an old analog phone. I need yeah. my Zoom. And, yeah, um, and also, you know, suppliers, right, that deliver. Things like Amazon and Instacart, you know, for getting your groceries and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of these and even, you know, large retailers that were able to keep supply chains moving like Walmart. I mean, these things are critical. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of what we have to do is really rethink how we think about critical infrastructure and what is critical infrastructure.
0: Very interesting, very, yeah, it's an insight into how reliant we are on the supply chain and also how stretched and how lean the supply chain is.
1: But but also we're very susceptible to misinformation, right? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, Twitter, for example, right now is going through all kinds of interesting dialogues with Elon Musk and potential lawsuits. And now there's an insider alleging security issues. But don't forget early in the pandemic, a 17 year old kid gets access via phishing to two presidential candidates a former president celebrities and other influencers and you know gets access to their accounts okay well what's the potential impact of that we'll wind all the way back to 2013 when in 2013 the ap news twitter account was hacked indicating there was an attack on the us white house and the stock market lost 136 billion dollars in market cap immediately yeah in seconds Now, Mm. that quickly restored when everybody realized this was false and someone had taken over the AP News' account. But again, you know, if Twitter is going to be the mechanism that the United States president uses to Mm. communicate globally, then it's critical infrastructure. Yeah, right. You know, and and that's how nobody's thinking that way when we talk Mm. about these social media networks and the importance of being able to manage and maintain, you know, what's the truth?
0: Yeah, Interesting. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and, and on to, I guess, some of the motivations behind large-scale cyber attacks. So from an outside perspective, they often seem quite varied in terms of motivation and, and perhaps a little opaque. But what can we say definitively about what drives, as you say, it's 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 people or groups of people, uh, what drive drives these individuals?
1: Well, I, I mean, there's nothing different here than, you know, what we've had for It's the start of time, like way before the Internet. Right. It's it's money. It's influence. It's trying to change people's minds. It's Mm. propaganda. It's all of the above. Right. Um, What is interesting, however, in my opinion, is and and I don't want to in any way uh, diminish the likely, you know, the nation state activity in this. And, you know, look, espionage is an accepted international practice. Right. Um, that's always going to exist, and cyber is just a new form of it, uh, along with influence, operations and everything in between. I think the more interesting thing is, the, um, is when we look at the um, cyber crime. Now, cyber crime has grown from a few hundred million to some estimates now have it over a trillion dollars a year. That's bigger than the- you know, so you're in Europe, that's bigger than the GDP of most European nations. Just think yeah. about that for a second, mm-hmm. right? Cybercrime is a bigger industry than Ireland. Yeah. That's a, you know, but, and here's the thing with cybercrime. We can go solve this problem, right? We may not be able to get everybody to agree on kind of the nation state activity and espionage and everything else, but we can go solve the cybercrime problem. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we need to really up our game there. It is what we're losing is just too big as a society and yeah. frankly nobody benefits from this
0: mm.
1: Mm. Uh, other other than the bad guy driving around moscow in a porsche uh, i mean yeah. he's living large uh, other than that though everybody's uh, kind of
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely and of course there's a there's a huge industry designed to help to thwart these attackers uh, and i know part of your um your current business is is helping private equity firms identify um cyber Cybersecurity firms with with um with potential um uh, helping to advise the private equity firms which cyber firms have the greatest potential. Uh, what is it that you look for uh, in, in a provider?
1: Well, you know what what I try to do is develop a thesis, right? Of where I think there's a market opportunity, either you know a technology that is new and emerging, or it could mm. even be an old technology that maybe can be repurposed, or a need in the market, so I start by talking with hundreds of CISOs and asking them what do they need that they don't have, uh, and yeah. some things emerge from that, right? Which is not usually what's in the market. Um, but the second piece of this that I think is really important, with a likely recession looming, is we really do need to rethink the metrics that you know cybersecurity CEOs. I'm talking about vendors here, how they measure themselves. You know, up to this point. Cybersecurity, as the industry started it's really all been about growth skills how fast can you grow and how do you manage growth and you know we're now entering a different phase here where for the first time because cyber security in the tech industry really weren't impacted during the 2008 downturn mm-hmm. you really have to go all the way back to 2000 before you saw an, an impact even in the it sector well the people that lived through that are now in their 50s right mm-hmm. so you know, the odds that your cybersecurity CEO has ever had to manage through a downturn, first of all, is low. Second mm-hmm. of all, it's a different set of skills. And I think what it really means is that a lot of CEOs, even if they're well funded, even if they have money in the bank, it's probably time to start pumping the brakes on yeah. spending and really start switching from growth metrics to free cash flow oh. and really looking at profitability. Because yeah. even if you have enough money to survive an economic downturn, The problem is when you come out the other end, everybody's going to be looking at all these companies and those that have a high burn rate. You know, even Mm. on the other side, nobody's going to be interested in why why would you buy a company with a ridiculous burn rate Mm. um, Mm. if they're growing at the same rate as a company that, you know, managed their free cash flow and is either profitable or on, you know, site to profitability, Mm. especially at a time when everybody's growth is probably going to slow down. Um, You know, I think the other thing we're really, Somewhat related to this, I, I'm not, I don't believe we will see, um, you know, we have such a dearth of skill in cybersecurity. Uh, if you look at cyberseek.org, you know, at it, various points, it's been over a million open jobs in the US. We are seeing that start to slow down. Um, but I think what we're seeing is people pulling back the postings. Uh, in some cases, you may see layoffs, so people get a new job the next week. So, mm. You know, I don't think we're going to have a unemployed situation in the cybersecurity industry if we see things slow down. But I do think we may actually make some, you know, the wrong kind of progress, if you will, towards solving the skill gap, and that we may see fewer open, unfilled cybersecurity jobs than what we've seen historically. Um, And, you know, that may be a good thing for people as well, because, you know, it may give some, uh, some employers the opportunity to really fill some of these roles. The key, though, is going to be filling them in ways and maintaining those people so they don't lose them.
0: Yeah, quite. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you. Some really key insights there. And I think uh, Alexandra's got some some more questions around the economy.
2: Yeah, fantastic. Just picking up on that recession talk, although slightly macabre, it's very interesting. So there is talk for global recession and certainly some of the heightened tech valuations we saw during Covid. Um, with the likes of Zoom and Netflix, and they've really taken a tumble. What do you see as the prospects for cyber during the next decade? Are we still right to be bullish about its growth opportunities, really?
1: Oh, absolutely. I I mean, the the Mm -hmm. simple fact of the matter is that, you know, we are still in an industry where we do not have enough people to fill the open jobs. The, Mm -hmm. you know, the need for those skills only continues to grow. Uh, But we are starting to solve some of the problems, right? We're starting to become a more diverse industry, which is great. Um, Some of the pipeline of getting skills is starting to get solved. Uh, But, you know, like any industry, the next round of innovations may, in some cases, be repeats of things we've seen before, where, you know, up to this point, in any particular segment of the market, whether we talk about identity and access or EDR or, you know, firewalls or intrusion prevention or anything in between. You know, we often saw one or two, maybe three or four companies that were duking it out to try to kind of win and survive. And, and the, you know, they would all ultimately win, if you will. It would just be you know, someone big and someone little. What I do think we're more likely to see now is kind of the second generation of companies starting to step in. And mm. you know, a great example of this would be as the EDR move market moves to you know, XDR. Um, you know, we're starting to see the next generation of companies come in Solving the same problem, but with a very different business model. and like any industry, those optimization companies uh, will probably be the ones that really you know win win in the long term here as the industry kind of turns over,
2: yeah, really fascinating and and interesting. and and, like you you mentioned diversity, and that's one of our core topics we always like to cover. What, what can cyber do to bring greater diversity of people, so women, people of color into the profession?
1: Well, it's definitely a problem.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I, I do think it's a problem that the industry is very focused on. And in some ways we have to be careful how we focus on it. Um, you know, I'm very concerned about some of the practices I see today in recruiting, where you know, oftentimes what will happen is you've got five companies all trying to recruit the same person. And, you know, because there's such a limited set of people that are, you know, underrepresented minorities that what's often happened is you're seeing these people just jump from one company to the next, to the next every year or two, um, obviously getting more salary and that's great for them, but it's not adding new people into the industry, right? It is creating scenarios where, you know, we're starting to see mentors and exemplars that are, you know, different colors, different orientation, you know. All of that is great. But at the end of the day, our real problem is we need more pipeline of people in general, let alone people from, you know, underrepresented minorities and diversity. So I, I think there's a couple of things we've got to really do here. First of all, we've got to look at how we recruit. And you know, I think all companies owe it to themselves to really take a step back and, It's not always going to be about recruiting underrepresented minorities, but it's really about bringing diversity of thought and background into your security operations center. So, you know, think that sometimes that may involve hiring somebody of younger, you know, someone that's younger that maybe doesn't have the skills, but providing that on the job training, because the benefit of that is, first of all, it may help you solve some of your diversity challenges, but also, you know, you're building new pipelines. The second thing, and this is something a lot of people don't look at, but really look at retooling skills, right? Go look at the IT industry, uh, kind of ignore a lot of the normal demographics you'd look at and actively go and recruit folks that, you know, maybe your are mid or later career that are looking to retool. Um, In both of these cases, if you look younger or you look older, you know, you're much more likely to find individuals that are probably going to cost you less and probably stick around longer. Um, You know, going out and recruiting the same people year over year that you can't maintain, all you're doing is spending a ton of money in recruiting and training costs versus actually solving the problem, and you're not building pipeline at the same time. Um, So I think there's a lot we need to do there. But, you know, we also need to look at, frankly, how we measure diversity in a company today. Um, You know, a lot of what we do today is we go out and we look at their total population and say, okay, you know, here's our total population. Here's our percentage of females. Here's our percentage of various, you know, underrepresented minorities. Um, but the problem is, and this is the real straight talk with this. If you then look at what role are those people in, go look at a hundred cybersecurity startups. The odds are the one individual on the executive team that is an underrepresented minority is either running marketing or HR. And, and it's it's so it's bad, it's the cliche. And it's but gotta true. stop. Yeah. Yeah. So so you know, I think we need to openly talk about this and say, okay. Mm. How do we solve this problem? Now, I think we need to solve it in a couple of ways. One, measure differently uh, and start measuring kind of some of these other roles from a diversity perspective. But also we've got to create those pathways to bring people into these other roles. Um, You know, it's just, it's not solving the problem, if you will. Uh, All it's doing is creating a vanity of diversity versus really thinking about operational diversity.
2: Mm, Really interesting. And and over the past decade, have you seen representation change with those pipelines or retooling? Have you seen that be implemented with different?
1: It is definitely getting better. So, for example, if you look at most major cybersecurity conferences, Mm. uh, there is a very conscious effort to ensure that the speakers and keynotes represent a whole series of backgrounds and really exemplars of capabilities, right? Like, you know, I'll. I can't, let me put it a different way. You know, obviously I'm a white male. I cannot think of a time that I have presented a major cybersecurity conference that I have not been with a co-presenter that is going to be a mentor or an exemplar to other audiences. And I think that's awesome to see, Mm -hmm. right? That the Mm -hmm. industry is really thinking about that. But as another area where we're not thinking about that is our marketing efforts, right? Like if we think about how we market to people, particularly you know, exclusive events, lots of sports marketing, right? Where, you know, if we're investing, let's say in that, you know, high-end exclusive golf tournament, you know, or, you know, there are a lot of sports that are very, you know, male oriented or don't have Mm -hmm. a lot of diversity. And you see this rampant across the security industry. Those pictures that end up on LinkedIn or the bro shots of everybody sitting around with a bunch (laughs) of sports, You know, sports players, that is sending exactly the wrong message to our community of what diversity is all about. Now, it's not that anybody's got the wrong intent with this, right? Everybody's out trying to have fun and work with their customers. But I do think it's time to really take a step back and think about where are you spending your marketing dollars? And is it going to build that diversity pipeline, not only for your recruiting efforts, but also for sales, um, and a lot of what people are doing is, you know, that imagery is powerful, and a lot of it's sending exactly the wrong message. Mm. Thank
2: you for your thoughts there. Yeah, really, really appreciate it. Um, but now it's time to bring it back to you, and let our listeners learn a little bit more about you outside of work, so a little more lighthearted. hearted um, So we've learned a bit about you already, but I'm sure our listeners would love to learn a bit more about you and we're a curious bunch what would your perfect weekend look like
1: so you know i'm an engineer by trade uh Mm -hmm. i like to work with my hands and uh, believe it or not you know when i'm not at work my whole goal is either be building something or fishing uh i'm Mm -hmm. actually a commercial fisherman not that i make any money out oh
2: wow (laughs) but it's
1: a um you know it gives me a license to actually go out and do some interesting things and you know catching fish is fun because at least in the area where I live, they're pretty crafty. It takes a lot mm. of thought of what are they doing? Where are they doing? What's the temperature? How are they moving? And a lot of gear that's involved. So that's a mm. ton of fun. And it's something I can do with my kids.
2: Nice. Oh, lovely. And then um, on to the quickfire round. So no clues here. Got to think. No clues. Feet. All right. No. Nope. Mm. <laughs> Triumphed in lockdown or failed in lockdown? Triumphed. City or country? Country. Rock music or classical? Rock. Netflix or Disney Plus?
1: Oh, Netflix all the way.
2: Apple or Microsoft? Apple. Self-catering or all-inclusive?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I-, I could go either way on that one.
2: Oh, come on. Where's the answer? I'll, I'll, I'll,
1: <laughs> go, I'll go self-catering.
2: Okay. Mountain peaks or bright white beach? Mountain peaks. Morning or evening? Morning. What is your favorite game or sport to watch and play?
1: Oh, well, it's different to, to watch. It would be football. Okay. Um, you know, to play, uh, play probably be soccer.
2: Okay. Sports car or camper van.
1: Camper van all the way.
2: Fab. Thank you. Great to get more insight on you. And our, our final question is always the same. What one piece of advice would you give to someone entering the industry?
1: So, anyone that's ever worked for me just started laughing when you asked that question because they all know the answer. Um, you know, this is an industry that has a language to it, and you really need to understand that language to be credible. But also, this is an industry where information has a shelf life because mm-hmm. attacks, defenses, these things are constantly changing. I mean, this is not an industry that you could easily pack up and leave the industry for a year or two and come back, right? Everything's mm-hmm. going to have changed. So, you know, what I tell people is they have to stay informed in the news of the industry every single day. Um, back from their early days, I've always felt that the CyberWire was the way to do that. It's, uh, you know, it's a regular podcast. Um, I kind of think of it like Game of Thrones, right? If you're a Game of Thrones fan. You know, the first few episodes, you have no idea what's going on. And, and it takes a season or two before you start to get it that all these things are connected. And I think the cybersecurity industry is the same way, right? So whether it's the CyberWire or your podcast or a threat feed, you have to stay informed about this stuff. And you have to do it every day. So what I've always mandated on my teams is that if you haven't read the news, don't come into work today. And I will I test people on it. Because <laughs> You know, I love if, that. You, if you don't know what the latest attack was and what it means and you get asked mm. by a customer, you're totally not credible. Mm.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah,
2: exactly. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time, Caleb. Great to hear all your thoughts and insights and a real pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Thanks so much.
2: Thank, thank, you. thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at wwwnuco groupcom That's N-E-U-C-O-group.com.